The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn to God's Word, we come tonight to the conclusion of our Judges series. And we look at the the second epilogue, the the second of two epilogues to the book of Judges. This has been an incredibly interesting book for me to preach through and to be part of this series. And we see tonight what I mentioned earlier, this central theme of the importance of God being our true King, our Savior and our King. We've sung some hymns about that. And uh, as we wade through the sad events of these chapters, the uh, muck and mire of human sin, we might say, and the nation of Israel and what's going on there, and we'll read that soon, but we're going to wait to read a little bit. I want to say a few words first. As we do that, as we read God's Word, I hope we will not see ourselves as somehow above all this muck and mire that we read the nation of Israel going through. I hope we will be, as it were, as we read, humming to ourselves amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Or maybe saying to ourselves that saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Because at heart, in light of our brokenness and our own sin within, we are no different from the ancient Israelites, are we? But, We know that those who know Christ have been given new life in Christ and spiritual blessings and riches in Christ that come with living in the fullness of Jesus Christ coming in history, in space and time, and pouring out his spirit upon his church. We have that blessing, and we live in the full daylight of the revelation of God in Christ, which the Israelites didn't have to that extent. But don't we know how we are prone to wander as well and turn away in various ways from God as our king. And so we want to learn from this very interesting conclusion to the book of Judges, chapters 19 to 21. Before I read them, or parts of them at least, I want to think about some preliminary observations. If you've been reading along with us through this book, I hope you've learned more how to interpret this book. But let me just make some observations before we we read. Because as we read chapters 19 to 21, it may at first seem that Scripture is only uh, recording facts for us. But I I want us to notice that it is also giving us important clues for moral and theological doctrinal application from what's said. It's almost like reading a newspaper account. Oh, of course, a, a bare report about the snow this week might not have much agenda to it. But we all know that even what news is included and what news is left out, especially about more controversial issues, more controversial than the snow, let's say, um, 
gives, is given from a perspective. The reporter is choosing what to report. And certainly that's the case here. And in fact, we notice that chapter 19 begins with this important statement that was in chapter 17 and chapter 18. Those cha- chapters were part of the first part of the ep- epilogue. But the chapter begins, in those days Israel had no king. And chapter 21, the conclusion of the book, concludes with that as well. So these are like bookends. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And we saw that again in chapter 17 and 18. So, in other words, as we read this, don't just think that we're getting bare facts. The author is giving us important perspective on what's going on as we read. The second thing I want us to see is as we read about the actions of various characters in this part and the tribes of Israel, it becomes clear that almost everyone is guilty of sin in some way and failure and not submitting to God, their true king, in some way. In other words, as you read this, you might think, well, who are the good guys? We know these guys are really bad. Who are the good guys? And are the good guys even doing what is right? It's very perplexing to read. And the answer is no. Just about everyone in this whole story is all messed up. Okay? That's what we're going to find. There's no John, Wayne, or Clint Eastwood riding in on a white horse here. And uh, it's interesting, the style of the book changes dramatically in this part of the book, in the epilogue. We've been so used to the ebb and flow of the whole book that there's apostasy. There's no mention of apostasy here, but it's everywhere around. The author just doesn't say it. There's no judge, although the Levite character that we see kind of sets himself up somewhat as a judge. He He enables Israel to mobilize in a way that we've never seen before. And there's no mention of external oppression coming and besieging. This is civil war that we're going to see. So don't be surprised if there's no hero here. Because what we've been seeing throughout the book is God is the only hero and the only savior that we need. The other, the last preliminary observation I want to make before we uh, read this, is that the writer is clearly writing from a period of history in which Israel has received the blessing of a good and godly king. Most conservative scholars would say that the author wrote during the reign of David or early in Solomon's reign. So, That's why he can say, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what he saw fit. He's writing from a time when there's a godly, a good king. Of course, we know that as the kingdom went on, it was pretty rare that you even had a good king. And so the book looks forward to the ultimate good king, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that at the beginning of the very very beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we, ask the, we see the Israelites ask, who will go up? And Judah is supposed to go up first. That's what God says in this war at the beginning. Here in chapter 20, at the end of the book, that same thing is repeated. Who will go up? Judah is t- told to go up first. And certainly foreshadowing the fact that ultimate deliverance and the Savior is coming from the tribe of Judah. 
So those are preliminary observations. Again, we're going to try to read parts of this. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I have my notes here to read parts and skip parts and say things. So let's see how that goes. I, I don't want to. It's too long to read the whole thing. Chapter 19. Let's hear God's word. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. A concubine, by the way, is like a second... Uh, uh, second-class wife with not the full, all the rights that a wife would have. So Hagar was Abraham's concubine. It was his wife, but didn't have all the rights that Sarah had. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. So this Levite, let me just pause here and say, he goes to, to get his wife back, and what we see in verses five, uh, in verses, uh, five through ten is these series of attempts, the Levite tries to leave. The father-in-law is really shows, uh, we might even say, uh, he's over the top with hospitality, so he's delayed another day or two, and he finally leaves late on the fifth day. And so we pick up the story in verse 10. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is, Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jabus, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them into his home for the night. Okay, so get the story at this point. The Levite, his servant, and his wife traveling. They left late in the day. They didn't get to where they wanted to go, but they're deciding what to do. The servant suggests they stop in Jerusalem. Now, this is Jerusalem before the Israelites settled there, before David's time. So it's a place where foreigners are living still. There's this enclave of Jebusites there. And the Levite doesn't want to stop there. Why does he not want to stop there? Well, it just might not be as safe, right? So it's supreme irony here that they don't go to Jebus or Jerusalem. They go three miles away from Jerusalem to Gibeah is where they're going to go. And it's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. So, uh, And the other thing I would say before we move on is that verse 15 says that they sat in the city square and no one took them into his home. Now, we might not think of that if that happened here as anything funny. We don't usually do that. But in that day, in the the ancient Near East, that was was a deep, uh, aggravated, uh, terrible, uh, inhospitable thing to do to anyone. It was... uh, 
not customary not to offer hospitality to a stranger who came into town. So it would have been a great affront. And I'll skip over verses 16 to 21. We find that an old man, interestingly, from Ephraim, not from Gibeah, takes them into his house. They've got their own food and things like that. They take them in, and we pick up the story in verse 22. They're with this older man in his home. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house that we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the man would not listen to him. So the man took his, concu- so the man took his con- concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until day daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider us. Consider it. Tell us what to do. And that last verse, you don't know for sure whether they're saying the crime that was done or they're referring to the way this message was sent out. Now, let's just pause here. No Israelite could read Judges 19 and not immediately think Genesis 19. Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. The comparisons are many. But we read this, this night of terror, and we think this is new Sodom in Israel. This isn't foreigners. This isn't Canaanites or any of the other ites, this is Israelites. And every Israel, Israeli reader would have been shocked to hear this. And we think, well, not only was the mob in Gibeah so depraved and sinful, but look at this Levite. Look even at this only man who took them in. Even he offers his daughter and the Levite's wife. And this Levite, what does he do? He shoves his wife out the door to save his own skin. He's willing to offer her up. How deeply callous and hard-hearted he is, the, the picture painted by God's word of this woman who finally makes it back to the threshold, and you just see her with her hand kind of on the threshold, dying there, apparently, although it doesn't say exactly when she died. Some commentators remark upon the fact that we, we don't know for sure. She could have died because he just picked her up and put, his on, put, put her... Uh, on his donkey, and she could have died on the way home. But most commentators believe that she was already dead. What a calloused and hard-hearted Levite. And so 
the mob is clearly depraved. No wonder Hosea, in chapter 9, verse 9, and in chapter 10, verse 9, twice refers to the, the days of Gibeah as an equivalent of deep moral corruption. He's referring to Judges 19, and he's talking about what happened here. Well, chapter 19, you could say it, you could term, term it the guilt of Benjamin. Chapter 20, you could term the destruction of Benjamin. Now, those aren't my main points here. But we, um, we're going to see Benjamin deeply judged now for their tribe's sin. Uh, chapter 20, let's read verses 1 to 3. Then all the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba, that's like saying from Florida to Maine, and from the land of Gibeah came Gilead, excuse me, that's not to be confused with Gibeah, came out as one man and assembled before the Lord in Mitzpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 soldiers armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mitzpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, who's really got, you know, throughout this book, We've never seen the nation unified. Well, finally, they're unified here. But they're unified against one of their own tribes. Another irony that's very deep here. And the Levite, in verses 4 to 10, which we're going to skip that part, but he tells his story. And if you read through that, you see that he conveniently tells the story to make himself look good. He lies about some of the parts of it. And he skips over the part about his own sin in this and tells the story, and the nation is mobilized to take justice into their own hands. And again, verse 11 summarizes this. So all the men of Israel got together and united as one man against the city. So there's a unique and incredible unity of Israel. Now we pick it up at verse 12. The tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin is the tribe in which Gibeah is found. Gibeah is part of Benjamin. Saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now surrender those wicked men of Gibeah so we may put them to death and purge the, Israel, the evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns in addition to 700 chosen men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So there's these 700 expert marksmen with a sling and a stone from Benjamin. And left-handed highlights the fact that Uh, if you hold up a shield in the usual angle, you'd do that. If somebody was throwing, apparently, from the left-handed side, it would hit you. You see, I guess that's part of the implication of all, of the power of having a left-handed, like a pitcher pitching a lefty. You know, he's hard to hit from, I guess. So, uh, verses 19 to 22, we have this battle take place. And day one of the battle, Israel is defeated. 22,000 Israelites killed. In verse 23, the Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord. They said, shall we go up again to battle against the Benjamites, our brothers? The Lord answered, go up against them. 
the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. So day two, Israel loses again, both times being told by God to go up and fight. Verse 26, then the Israelites, all the people went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the ark of the covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. They asked, shall we go up again to battle with Benjamin, our brother, or not? The Lord responded, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. Let's just stop there again. This is the third time they've inquired of the Lord. This time, there are more deep evidences, apparently, of repentance, weeping before the Lord. And it's interesting, we find out here that unlike what we might think that this, chronologically, we might think that this took place after the judges that we've read about all through the book, we find out that this epilogue takes place at the beginning of the time frame because Phinehas, Aaron's grandson, is the high priest. So this is an event that took place before the other judges, but the author of the book puts it here as a, a very fitting conclusion to the book because this is what characterized the period as a whole. Everyone doing what was right in his own eyes, needing a true and godly king to rule them. And uh, we find out here that they again inquire of the Lord. And by the way, remember, Ehud, the judge, is going to come from the tribe of Benjamin. So that will take place chronologically after this, but now we read about this uh, third battle that takes place, day three, we might say. And there's, in verses 29 through 45, it's very reminiscent of the battle of Ai in the book of Joshua when there's an ambush. The Israelites fake, attack, and then they withdraw and draw the Benjamites out. And there's an ambush, and the other... Uh, Israelites burned city behind them. And so Benjamin is finally defeated, and a summary is in chapter uh, 20, verses 46 to 48, at the end of chapter 20. On that day, 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters, but 600 men turned and fled into the desert to the rock of Rimmon, where they stayed four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found, all the towns they came across, they set on fire. So there's this utter destruction of the tribe of Benjamin, except for these 600 men. And then we get to chapter 21 that you could term sorrow for the tribe of Benjamin. I'm going to read parts of this, and then we're going to make conclusions and some lessons from this. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mitzpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, Who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mitzpah should certainly be put to death. 
Now the Israelites grieve for their brothers, the Benjamites. Interesting, isn't it? Now there's grief. They've just wiped them off the face of the earth, so to speak. Today, one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those who are left? Since we have taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage. And the rest of chapter 21 is really a two-part solution to this perplexing problem of how to get these 600 remaining Benjamites wives. One part of it is that they found out that the town of Jabesh-Gilead hadn't responded to the call to arms. And so they go and exterminate this Israelite town, and they plan that the women who are there who are not married, virgins, they will give to the men of Benjamite. So they find 400 of them that way. And then we pick up the story in verse 13. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the rock of Rimmon. So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the women of Jebesh Gilead who had been spared, but there were not enough for all of them. The people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribe of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, with the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for, for the men who are left? The Benjamite survivors might must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives since we Israelites have taken this oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, there is the annual festival to the Lord in Shiloh, to the north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and to the south of Lebanon. So what we're going to see is the second part of the solution is... And again, we're kind of weighing. They took this oath. It was a foolish oath, apparently, in the first place. And now they're stuck because they can't give the Benjamites any Israelite daughters for wives. So they come up with these kind of quirky solutions. And, And this one is that they're going to go, verse 20 and 21, and when this festival's taking place, we're going to tell these last 200 Benjamites to take a wife who's in the festival and will reassure the families of these wives and tell them, you, you can't be blamed for breaking your oath because you didn't give your daughters. They were taken. And so they sin against these girls from Shiloh and from the girls' families as well. And so as you're reading this, you're just thinking, is this God's plan? Is this the way it was supposed to work out? So we, we read about this. Their plan, in a sense, works. And when the fathers and their brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us a kindness by helping them. This is verse 22. Because we did not get wives for them during the war, and you are innocent since you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the girls were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Doesn't that statement at the end really hit home now? Wow, what a mess. What muck and mire. Who's doing anything right here? Well, I've been wrestling with this text for weeks now. Let's just draw a couple lessons from this and, and see what we can learn from this. 
The first point is this. Chaos, confusion, and sin reign in a people when they are not ruled by God. Chaos, confusion, and sin reign in any people, any society, any nation, when they are not saved and ruled by their true king, the Lord. Maybe you read that article in the newspaper this week about the transit authority guards who who don't carry guns. I forget what city this was in, but a 15-year-old girl went running by them Running looked like for her life. She came up and kind of hid behind them. There were three were standing right there, and some other girls were after her. But they're not supposed to interfere. They're supposed to call the police. So at their very feet almost, these other 15-year-old girls were kicking this girl and stepping on her head and beating her up right before their eyes. That's in America. Things like this occur. Now, we could say, well, we understand they were following protocol, but even the transit authority of this city was upset about this event because here were normal, strong men letting a 15-year-old girl be beaten up right in front of their eyes. And the police did eventually arrive, and, but it took a while. We're used to front-page headlines. We're so inured to the kinds of sin and brokenness in our society that we just don't stop to think about the fact that in the United States, we see Romans 1 unfolding. God gave them up. God is giving up nations to their sin. That's what he does. And when a people are not ruled by God, and when I say that, I'm not saying each and every person in a society saved and following Christ, but the direction of our society is certainly, evidently, downhill in terms of its sin. And so, should we be surprised that we see this in Judges as well? In fact, we would say that the United States and other modern nations have been given much more light and gospel blessing from God than the Israelites had at this point. And so, our guilt is the worst. But secondly, the second lesson we can draw, our departure from God as our true king can show up in both respectable hidden sin and scandalous debauched sin. In other words, our departure, not following our true king, can show up in respectable ways, in ways that nobody sees, or it can show up in scandalous ways. And we see evidences of both of these. We see the men of Gibeah in this shocking new Sodom kind of way acting the same way Lot experienced when he was there. And we see the Levite, the old man from Ephraim. We see the Israelites and their strange solution to the problem of Benjamin not having wives. All these sins and failures and misjudgments and injustices perpetrated. And we need to ask ourselves, okay, maybe we wouldn't be doing what the men of Gibeah did, but where do we need to more completely submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives? As we go about our lives, and for the most part, I think, I would guess that we're all living pretty respectable lives. Where is it that Jesus Christ is putting his finger on our lives this week and saying, this is an area of your life that I claim, that I make mine 
Where is it that God is convicting us of areas of sin that we are, you know, that famous My Heart, Christ's Home story or book that compares our heart, our inner being to a home, and we have certain rooms shut off to Christ. Where is it that Jesus Christ intends to occupy a new room in our heart, in our life? And certainly this applies to anyone here tonight who hasn't submitted to the lordship of Christ in a fundamental, basic way in terms of coming to Christ. You might be able to hold your sin in check right now and keep it kind of respectable and and live in a respectable way in our society, but who knows where you will be tomorrow in terms of the enslaving power of sin's dominion in your life. You think you control your sin, but your sin controls you. You think that your idolatry is something you use to get what you want, but your idolatry really controls you and enslaves you. And so if you haven't come to faith in Christ... Let this text tonight be a warning and an exhortation to you to come to Jesus Christ, to come and gladly submit to him as your king who loves you and died for you that you might have eternal life and reigns graciously over those who are his. His yoke is light. Well, our third application is this. God will save his people from the deepest depths of depravity and sin. And how does he do that? By his grace. I want to look at four ways that God works through grace that we see evidenced here in our text. We need God's grace daily in our lives. How can we apply this? Well, one evidence of this we see is God's faithful discipline. Notice how the sin of the tribe of Benjamin, and the reason Benjamin was judged is that they refused to do justice in this case of Gibeah. In other words, they were more concerned about their brothers by blood than, by, than to seeing to justice be done. And so this discipline is brought upon them. In fact, chapter 20, verse 35, if you're wondering about whether this was of the Lord that Benjamin be destroyed, notice, notice there it says, the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. Clearly a statement, again, one of the many clues we get in this book, that it is the Lord who judged Benjamin and defeated them. And so God's faithful discipline was at work. He deeply chastised the tribe of Benjamin. But notice he doesn't eradicate them. We'll see that. What a blessing. Even this strange and odd way in which the tribe was saved, he saved the tribe of Benjamin. And by the way, Do you remember what tribe the Apostle Paul was from? Benjamin. If Benjamin would have been eradicated, we wouldn't have had the Apostle Paul, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. So his faithful discipline, and I think we can remind ourselves of Hebrews chapter 12. Be encouraged that he disciplines those whom he loves. So if you're tempted to faint... Remember, the faithful discipline of God, it's an evidence of God's grace in our lives. The second thing we see is the blessing of God's means of grace. We might use that term, the normal means of grace. It's interesting, as as the Israelites prosecute this war, we see them inquiring of the Lord a number of times. 
In fact, in chapter 20, verses 27 and 28, we saw this description. Uh, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, and then it, the side note there, in those days the ark of the covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. And that's when they asked the Lord what they should do. Think of this. Israel had the means of grace during this war. Benjamin had none of this. Benjamin had no priest, no ark, no divine guidance. Israel certainly had its problems and its setback, but the nation had access to divine guidance through the high priest. And we would call this, in our day and age, the means of grace. In this sense, Benjamin is already under divine judgment and discipline. What can be worse for Benjamin than no counsel from God, no access to God's presence? Israel had these things. And so we see that the normal means of grace are one of the ways, one of the primary ways God communicates his grace to us. In fact, the book of Hebrews, as we think about the application of these things to ourselves, and we thought about discipline, the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, speaks about this as well. When the author says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, encouraging them in their suffering, in their hardship to, to meet together and experience the means of grace together to encourage one another. And that's what you and I often need, often when our worlds are falling apart and there's perplexity and sin on every side and we're in the muck and the mire of life in this broken world, we need the presence of God through the normal means, His Word, the Spirit of God working through the Word of God as we read it, as we hear it preached, as friends encourage and exhort us by the Word of God. But then another thing we see in this text is God's mysterious providence. In this battle, twice the Israelites inquire of the Lord, should we go up and fight? And the Lord says, yes. And what's the result? They lose. Day one, 22,000 Israelites killed. Day two, 18,000 Israelites killed. If you were an Israelite, wouldn't you be saying, Lord, I thought you told us to go up. Now, there are two views of why they lost day one and day two. One view is that he, God wanted a deeper repentance, and possibly that's what we see at the end of day two when there's this, apparently, this deeper weeping and humbling themselves before the Lord. And that could be the answer to it. It could be that along those lines, God was also disciplining Israel, not just Benjamin, but Israel. But it's also possible that this is part of God's, his mysterious ways, his inscrutable ways. Israel receives the favor of divine guidance and yet sees no initial evidence of God's help. And the application we might make to ourselves is we might know God, God's revealed will and we might walk in the pathway of God's revealed will, but our life could be marked by trouble and not success. That shouldn't surprise us. Maybe that's what was happening here. Maybe that's just an example for us to take encouragement from. Of course, you also find out that the first two defeats lead to Benjamin's self-sufficiency and their final defeat the third day because this ambush works because of that. 
But the, the mystery of God's providence, and I apply it to us especially in terms of suffering in our lives. Maybe you are walking in the way of the word of the Lord. Of, of, of the Lord and your life is beset by hardship. Don't be surprised, First Peter says, by the fiery trial that tests you. Hebrews says, remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. He talks about the suffering they experienced. He's reminding them, when you came to Christ, it was in the context of suffering persecution. Don't be surprised if it happens again now. And so it is with you and with me. The mystery of God's providence in terms of suffering in our lives, we must take that as part of God's grace. His grace by which he holds us. And then the the fourth way of God's grace to us, and I would say it in this terms of our great Savior, his tenacious grace, he never lets go of those that he saves by the power of Jesus Christ, his great King, the great Savior of the world. Judges, one author puts it this way, ends with a miracle. And you're saying, Pastor, a miracle? That sounds like it's just totally confused. The point of this author is, though, it's a miracle that Israel still exists, that God didn't exterminate them, that in all of this muck and mire, God and his grace by which he holds them keeps them. And now this writer, writing at a point in which he had, the, the nation has a good king, David most li- likely, is saying, this is where God wanted to bring them. Now we have a king. And we know that that looks forward even more so to the ultimate fulfillment of the king, Jesus Christ. And so the book ends. It ends with a miracle, the continued existence of Israel as God's people. And we can say that's God's grace to us as well. Isn't that the end of Romans chapter 8? What, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Only because God wishes to dwell in the midst of his people in spite of their sin and their stupidity and their depravity. It is God who is our true king. And let us rejoice today in God our Savior through Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, thank you for this book which certainly speaks to today. We think of our nation. We think of the church in this nation. We think of that hymn we sang about uh, pleading for your church to be purified and to be strong and for your kingdom to come. And we ask that, O Lord, in our time, in our day, we say with the prophet, in wrath, remember mercy. You know that we don't deserve this, but Lord, visit your people again in our time if it be your will, and even in the normal ways that you work, Lord, may Jesus Christ be lifted up. May the great high priest, the great king and savior of the world be made to be shown uh, very beautiful in our time and in this place, through our lives, in the words that we say, 
And to him be all the glory. Amen.